Anyway, welcome to Defan again. Uh, I think we've spent enough um, enough time not doing podcasts. So this time we have uh, just a little bit of technical difficulty, if we can call that. Uh, so um, welcome, Jack, to the episode. Hey, PJ. Nice to meet you. Hey. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> <laughs> As an official, official introduction. But I think let's let's start with Jack. I mean, okay. So... Tell us, about, tell us about yourself, Jack. You have, uh, I don't know, how many minutes left? Right, 25 like, minutes. We got 25 minutes. It's all yours minutes. for 25 minutes. <laughs> uh, I am an earthling. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Despite any rumors to the contrast that you may have heard, I assure you that I am an earthman like yourselves. Hmm. That's exactly what an alien would say, right? <laughs> <laughs> to, to convince us. <laughs> He's among us. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you so, lads want to talk about tonight here we go you've invited me here to this thing we've tried for months <laughs> yes we've been chasing you for months uh well let's talk about closure or well maybe even even more than closure actually because i think you know you did a really really uh interesting talk at uh was it strange loop there um, i did i did a talk at strange loop whether it's interesting yeah, is a yeah. question of opinion of course but well, I mean, interesting is not an objective quality, right? I mean, it <laughs> depends on the person. So I'm saying it's very interesting to me, and I'm pretty sure a lot of people found it uh, very interesting. So, um, yeah, I'm but I would say I would say don't talk about that because you can just go and walk the t- watch the talk. So yeah, yeah. it's yeah. on Change YouTube. You can find it easily. Uh, Change yeah. the subject. Come on, he's, but, he's, he's, it's it's boring to talk about the same things all the time. No, we're not going to talk about the same thing. Where my my question is like. Where, where did you come from oh my God, to have that much, of, that much of experience about, you know, all the stuff? Because there is, you know, uh, the, the computing you started almost like the punch card level stuff. Yeah. So what happened there uh, biographically is that when I started, it was uh, started at university, it was 1985. And mm-hmm. punch cards were not the leading edge of technology at the time, as you could imagine. <laughs> But they were still out there in industry. And so I had to take one Fortran class using punch cards to make sure that were I to end up in industry writing that kind of code on that kind of equipment, I would be able to do it. So in that sense, I'm kind of uh, a member of the last generation of people who were made to do that at university. And I'm happy to report that although I I did write some Fortran for money, I did not have to uh, do any punch card work for money. That was all uh, classwork. Oh, okay. And then the, then, then the big leap to closure from punch card. <laughs> yeah, pretty much directly. Yeah, because I had a time machine, and so I was able to come forward. No. Uh, so the early part of my career was spent uh, mostly doing very low-level things in assembly and C. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I did some embedded systems things. I was a Unix kernel hacker starting in the mid-'80s. Uh, I was yep. mainly like porting BSD to different hardware, uh, working on file systems, uh, blah, 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 that, that kind of thing. But at the same time, uh, I was very interested in first Lisp and then later functional, other functional programming languages. So, uh, you know, we had Spice Lisp and we had Vax Lisp, which ran on our old Vax machines in the mid 80s. Of course, there was Scheme, which I encountered uh, originally by way of the classic intro to computer science course for which SIGP is the manual. Um, And then in the sort of latter part of the 80s, there was Miranda, which is kind of Haskell's mother. Yeah. Um, which uh, the author of Miranda tried to take it uh, in the direction of being a commercial 
uh, sort of language, and it, it didn't really take off, and the research community decided they needed something like it to carry on, and that was the birth of Haskell. Mm. Uh, so I always really liked the pure functional stuff once I encountered it around 87 or so, but I also preferred S-expression syntax and did a lot of lisping on a wide variety of different uh, environments. And yeah. the low-level stuff also brought me into contact with, I've written a bunch of fourths. Uh, whenever I encounter a new piece of hardware, I like to write a fourth first to explore the hardware and uh, and then work from there. And So yeah. fourth is the stack-based uh, programming thingy, right? Is it yeah, basically? yeah. Some people yeah. like to call them concatenative languages. They're, okay, they're yeah. an interesting kind of uh, relationship to lisps where they're, uh, they sort of put the verb at the end instead of the beginning. And yeah. uh, they are based more on function composition rather than function application. Mm -hmm. um, but they are both languages that are, can, you can start with a very minimal core and build the DSL that you want. They both support a, a quoting mechanism that gives you something like macros and so on. They're, they're really great languages. I find fourth difficult to write large systems in, but it, it happens to have the property that it is a good and flexible interactive programming environment that you can fit on arbitrarily tiny, crappy hardware. So mm -hmm. it's a nice place to start. I, when I write a bootloader for some new thing I'm going to develop, I'll often you know, use CNAssembly to create a fourth and then do everything with fourth for a while until I'm comfortable with how the hardware works and then work my way up from there. No, so it's basically like the C for the uh, for the hardware, like the first layer of high high level programming language that yeah. you build quickly and then okay. Yeah, the amazing thing about it is how much leverage it gives you, how expressive it is while being while while expressing also extreme machine sympathy. Because the mm -hmm. machines we have, they all have a stack discipline on them already. So it maps very squarely to the kind of hardware that we typically deal with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's one of my sort of desert, desert island programming languages. I would recommend everybody to learn whether they need it or not so that they can use the perspective that it provides in their other work. Yeah. But because you you started with, uh, you, you mentioned Miranda and then a bit of a Haskell thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, I know that you have, a, uh, I think, strong opinions. Maybe it's my perception that strong opinions about the types and, and, and lack of it. So how do you find closure versus other stuff in, in that sense? Well, so with the, uh, and I do have to mention the talk boringly, uh, <laughs> a lot of people uh, have an impression from the talk that I, I tried to deliver in a way that would hint towards how I really felt about it, but I only had so much time. You might notice yeah, that I'm yeah. speaking in fast forward without the fast forward button through that talk to try to get everything in. So with the transcript of the talk that I host on my own site, I include a bunch of notes, including some things that go into a bit more detail about yeah. you know, that whole question. And it's yeah. not that I feel types are useless or harmful, it's that I feel like, like every other tool available to us, they have their benefits and their costs. And it's best to use them when the benefits outweigh the costs. So for early exploratory programming, I find them actively frustrating. And I think it's yeah. very easy to over tighten the specification of your program too early when you're not really sure what you're building yet. And certain kinds of software, especially the kind of software that say Rich Hickey um, spends most of his time writing, uh, can, it can be actively uh, unpleasant to have a type discipline that prevents you from kind of using the software in an open way. So moving the moving maps around and leaving it open so the next person who comes along doesn't need to change a million call sites in order to enrich some piece of data flow is quite useful. 
uh, in that kind of software. And then there's other kinds of software where you really do want to tighten it up. And so my more uh, nuanced position on types is that the, for me, the future of type systems and programming languages is more gradual typing. So if you look at typed racket, you look at TypeScript, you look at what is sort of kind of, but not quite happening in type closure, you, you see a kind of direction where you can play fast and loose in the early stages and then tighten things up once you know what you're actually doing and only in the places where it makes sense. Yeah, but I think the 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 idea, I, I totally understand the idea that, you know, uh, at the initial phase of it, you, you want to have as much freedom as you want to, you know, as you'd like to have. But then the, the choice right now is that you have to rewrite in a different language, which is there is no... Uh, easy way to switch from I'm, I'm writing completely dynamic shit in python or closure and then now i i know the design more or less you know now i can tighten it up but it's not possible that much right with the with the languages that we have well there are relatively few languages this is what typescript does typescript adds yeah. types as a layer on top of javascript i if you find as i do javascript somewhat unappealing to write then it's unfortunate yeah. that that's the language that you're enriching with the types uh, and type bracket is actually very nice and, and is a great source of ideas in that broader context. You know, there's a whole research community there that's working on this problem and coming up with good ideas. I think, I think one of the, I think one of the biggest issues that I find with, in this sense is like, there's this idea of like tightening things up, which is, I agree with that. Of course, you know, it would be nice just to apply the minimum amount of types afterwards. The problem seems to be like almost cultural law. It's like whether you think in types or not. Or whether you think in data, that that seems to be a bigger sort of cultural difference that maybe people struggle with, you know, because you know I come from a like I like you, I started with C, which was you know essentially untyped, you know, you can kind of type deaf things, etc. But um, you know, it's fairly wide, you know, what's, what are pointers that can go wrong, opaque pointers everywhere, so you can, you can you can definitely play fast and loose with opaque pointers, but. But the point is that uh, when you think like that, you 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 kind of are focusing on the data that's being passed around, eventually. Um, but then you go to Java or C plus plus and things like this, or you know Haskell. Obviously, the type systems are more powerful with Scala and Haskell and stuff like that. But but you end up thinking in those kind of types first, and like the data second. I mean, do you think that matters? Well, you, you talk about the culture, and I think there's a real thing there where the people, where, where the language communities have a culture that points in a certain direction. But I would say also that the culture is following, to some, dis, to some extent, the disposition of the people. Uh, and so I think some people just naturally uh, think type-wise rather than thinking function-wise first. And, so, and I think some people naturally think better in, for example, objects than they do in functions and data. And so although I have my preferences, it would always seem the case to me that none of these domains is necessarily the ultimate one because different people, uh, their brains work different ways and there should be mechanisms available that match their disposition. Wait, are um, we going to nature versus uh, nurture <laughs> thing here? <laughs> no, but isn't it a matter, I mean, you say, it's like people, I think the problem you end up with is in a kind of like where you if you if you meet people where they are, which is I think what you're trying to do, that's fair enough. But it, but if you're sort of like designing um, like the future of computing or whatever, um, if you're thinking about how should we think, what are the best ways of thinking? Like object objects and stuff like that don't seem to offer very much. They seem to just offer a kind of um, odd way of. Passing up data, uh, you know, for me anyway. Having having been through that, 
having been you know before it and through it and out the other side it doesn't you know well there there are certainly some type systems that i think are less good than others uh so i would say that if a person uh, and i counter this very often in the closure community so i'm going to point it because i might mostly be closures who hear this i'm going to point out this particular way of thinking that I, I think is something of a mistake is that many people who arrive to the closure communities experience with for instance object-oriented programming is specifically object orientation as practiced in java and or c and they both have actually very bad object systems, ultimately. And I, my apologies to the designers of the languages who are very smart people who work very hard. But if you compare the experience of programming uh, those languages to programming something like Smalltalk or using the common Lisp object system, you have a, you know, a completely different world. So it, I don't think dismissing objects entirely is necessarily uh, as good of an idea as looking at aspects of specific type systems uh, or object-oriented type systems that are a problem. So in the case of Java, for example, the entire culture of Java programming for the first 15 years of the language was based about building ridiculously uh, convoluted patterns to get around the fact that you can't just pass a function, right? So you've got factory, factory, factories because you can't partially apply a function instead. And that's because that type system is, is really not as expressive as it should be. But if you look at things people get up to in Smalltalk or with Clos, it, it's, actually, it's actually very good sometimes. There are situations where it makes sense. And just to give you one example of a place where I would tighten types up in closure code, for example, uh, in my early career, I would say the code I wrote the most often was like link lists and hash tables and stuff like that, because I was always going to new hardware where I didn't have a good library. But once that stuff kind of evened out, I found myself rewriting essentially the same sort of uh, linear algebra code over and over again. You know, I have to manipulate these matrices. I have to, you know, and... In those cases, we, we kind of know what that code's going to look like and what it's going to do. And if I can give some type hints that prevent me from passing the wrong shaped thing in the wrong place and can allow the compiler to generate much better code and so on, then it's worth my while, you know? Because you're mentioning like linear algebra stuff. So mainly are you working, like what is the area of focus that, that you're applying closure and uh, all the other languages that you're using? Is it, uh, it doesn't sound like it's a... It's a web programming kind of thing, like crowd applications. I, I don't do much of that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say that. I'll say that for the record. I have done some of that uh, in my professional yeah. career to make money, but it's not mo the most fun that I have, right? So, yeah, yeah. Uh, but what I do find is that there are a tremendous number of things in my life that are easily expressed in, in the terms of a vector or of a mm. matrix uh, across. You know, maybe maybe you need an adjacency matrix because you're doing some kind of. Uh, you know, path tracing thing, and it's more efficient than building out a bunch of nodes with pointers or something. You know, it's just even that you need some way to efficiently deal with big boxes of things or whatever. You know, shapes that yeah, have yeah. numbers in them. Uh, but there are also loads of things, simple uh, mathematical things. If you want to do something with a complex number, you're probably going to use a two vector to represent it, and you know, you want to have you want to have it not mix up the types when you're making calls and so on. And Clojure has some, some nice ways to do this. Like you can use def method to do some of this stuff like you would do, do in common Lisp and so on. And, and those, those are useful. Those are actually object-oriented abstractions. You know, mm. it's, that's not not object-oriented. That's just a better kind of object-oriented. Mm. Yeah. yeah. But so are you using any, um, any libraries uh, because for, for this computing stuff, uh, the stuff that is, I think, uh, Dragon and other folks are building, like the, all the linear algebra libraries, or are you... Are you artisanally coding in, in Clojure? 
So I do have <laughs> so I, I do have a private uh, a private rapper around Blast, uh, you know, oh, LA yeah. Pack and Blast <laughs> that I wrote in two thousand nine or so, and I've been carrying around with me. Uh, I have been meaning to update the code that depends on that to use Neanderthal or something instead, because I would prefer to you know push the dependencies out to things that I can share with other people when possible. Uh, but then a lot of things are just are just running on the JVM. If I don't need that much performance, it can be very yeah. convenient to just hack it the other way. There, uh, and in that situation, if you need a, a really flexible, well-designed API for doing those kinds of things, then Karsten Schmidt's uh, Geom stuff and his mathematics library, uh, that stuff is really good. Hmm. He's moved on now to mainly working in TypeScript, but the code still runs fine. It's closure code. It doesn't rot very fast. So... Uh, yeah, and it all runs uh, equally well in ClojureScript and Clojure, so you can write this code in a ClojureC file and use it in both. And yeah, so that's what I would recommend for most people who just need a good flexible API and don't care about the performance. If you need slightly better performance and don't care about ClojureScript, then you can use uh, the FastMath library, mm -hmm. uh, which is is written by someone whose whose public name <laughs> is Generate Me Blog. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he was a very nice guy who's a member of the community and does a lot of art stuff. So yeah, I guess you guys are also aware I do a lot of digital art and a lot of that stuff, yeah, of course, yeah. is, is quite mathematical in its underpinnings. And so, yeah, I'm doing a lot of things with matrices and you know, so on in, in that context. Yeah, but this digital art thing, well, probably it's not related to Clojure, but hey, it's not a Clojure podcast anymore, so fuck it. And <laughs> we're talking about everything here. Um, so how do you feel about all this table diffusion and uh, what is it, uh, mid happy face, hugging face thingy and all these things generating art. And then, you know, I, I know your art is more generative art. Like it looks like more mathematical. Yeah. Uh, I, I, in, in a I, sense, I, everything yeah. is mathematical, right? Yeah. It's all, I mean, that stuff's all linear algebra at the bottom as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I have done work since an early stage using neural networks to produce art to experiment with it, but I have never mm -hmm. found the practice very satisfying. Hmm. Uh, so for me, there is a kind of flow state that one can get into where there is a connection with the work that's being done and you steer the work towards the part of the latent space that you want by changing the code and it's kind of like a painter painting with a brush. I love that hmm. feeling. Hmm. When I type a clever prompt into a model that generates a picture, often the output is very cool looking, but the actual process that I am using to do it is not at all gratifying. So I don't... Yeah. I don't do that stuff because I don't enjoy it very much. Uh, I have colleagues who train their own models and do incredible work. There's, uh, there's a woman who goes by the name of Neural uh, Bricolage, who is one of the best. Uh, there's also Mario Kligeman. I will uh, you know, shout out to both of them as people who are doing real competent artistic work, not just using it as like a strange art slot machine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but for me, it's not gratifying, so I don't do it. Hmm. But what, what is your process like then? Because you're using Clojure plus um, your homegrown libraries or? Uh, yeah, I've got a bunch of my own libraries, uh, some of which use some of uh, Karsten's stuff, some of which use some of Generate Me blog stuff, uh, some of which uses stuff that is only my own. Uh, mm. I have a bunch of things that allow me to live code the art as I'm going. So yeah. I'm always running, you know, in Emacs, I'm evaluating code as changing the outcomes. And say it's a 3D thing, I can export that and render it either in my own ray tracer that I've written in C off to the side, or if I want some really elaborate material for which I've not coded up support, I might import it into Blender. 
I have a thing that, uh, that transpiles my closure sketches into a Python dialect that Blender understands, so it emits Blender files that I can then load into Blender oh. and adjust the camera and stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's pretty much what you'd expect. But you didn't try this uh, Unity stuff uh, with Clojure yet. I, I couldn't get it to work within uh, one hour of playing with it and like yeah. at all, and then I stopped. <laughs> That's basically my <laughs> policy on those kinds of things is I'll give it a second, and if it's too much pain, then I'll just keep using my own stuff. So I haven't done anything yeah. with uh, Arcadia yet, but it does. I, I like the people who made that project, and I wish them the best, and hopefully at some stage it'll work for me, and I'll make some things with it. Yeah. But what do you what do you see like the positive stuff with Clojure doing all this kind of work and then the pain in the ass stuff in Clojure for you? In the art context? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so mean, art plus other other work that you're doing, like a bit of mathematical work as well, everything. Sure. Uh, so for me, I and I told Rich this the first time I met him at, at Euroclosure one year, is that I, I think he has done a really fantastic job at curating a set of features that work well together for the kind of programming that I enjoy. Mm. Uh, so uh, that is, I think, his approach to language design, rather than coming up with many languages, there'll be sort of one clever idea and then a bunch of junk you know, bolted onto it. And, act, and you like the clever idea, but using the language isn't very fun. Mm. But with Clojure, he was very careful. The, the, the sort of orthogonal set of things that he chose, all those decisions somehow hang together in a way that makes for a very pleasant experience writing code uh, mm -hmm. that then is very maintainable and continues to work for years and years. So I've got some mm -hmm. code that I wrote in 2009 that's still happily in production on a VPS out in the cloud doing what it's supposed to do. And I've had to do nothing to that code in the subsequent 14 years. And I like that very much. Uh, I, the only languages I have that are doing better than that, I have some scheme that I wrote 30 plus years ago that still works. But it, you know, it's, uh, it's a rare quality in the world we live in where JavaScript libraries explode seven days. Out. It's like one of those spy letters that says, you know, we'll explode after opening when you download the yeah, package yeah. from NPM. Yeah. So. It's, it's an invisible ink, that one. Yeah. <laughs> but that is, the, that is the positive part of it. Like the so that's the positive part. part. Uh, for yeah. me, the negative bits are when I need to do something lower level. Obviously, a JVM hosted language is not great for that. Yeah. And so I might you know, drop out and write some C. I have a scheme dialect, a scheme compiler of my own that's a private thing that I've been carrying around for 25 plus years uh, that, that compiles to very tight code. Uh, so I use that for some things. So, so those situations where I need to get closer to the metal, obviously, Clojure doesn't work for me. It's a hosted language, and I have to be in a situation where the hosted runtime is the right thing. Yeah, yeah. So I was about to ask like whether you use Emacs or some other shit, which is something I usually ask people. And I, I heard you use Emacs, or is it... Uh... Yeah, I've been using Emacs since, since 1985. <laughs> it, it, it is, uh, it is uh, my DNA and the DNA of Emacs are now entwined permanently. I will probably never escape. <laughs> so it is burnt into your, uh, your fingers. <laughs> and uh, for people who like to use uh, kind of Apple Macintosh sort of computers and want an Emacs that cooperates with that environment a little better, I have a, a config, a very simple, small config up on GitHub uh, that is is less painful to start with if anyone wants Ooh, to get nice. involved with Emacs. Mm. So what 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 do you see in terms of the future, like future of programming in general? You've so, got three minutes, Jack, by the way. <laughs> All right, I'll try, I'll try to answer oh, the shit, question, yeah. define the entire agenda for the future of programming in the next three minutes. <laughs> for that, I think I, I, I would refer to the like last, last 10 minutes or 
15 minutes of my talk at Strange Loop to give you a sense of it. But um, yeah, so I like applicative languages in general. I like Clojure in particular. And we're doing a bunch of experiments over at NextJournal to try to uh, improve programming experience using Clojure. One of those is Clark, or for Americans, Clark. Uh, which is firstly computational notebook, but a lot of other things too. You should watch Philippa Markovich's talk on this from a recent closure conference where she gives many excellent examples of the kinds of things you can do with that software even today. And we are rapidly building new bits and pieces that will be kind of like the Iron Man supersuit that any closure developer can put on and fly around with superpowers. So Some of that. It's basically, <laughs> so it's basically explorative programming, that's where you see the whole, uh, or, or most of the you know, exciting stuff is going to happen. Well, I think interactive programming is super important, and I think it's an area that we've mostly been ignoring for the last 20 years or so uh, in, yeah. in how we approach designing programming languages and programming environments. Uh, I think, uh, as, you know, I like types and I like using them, but uh, I do feel we've been obsessed with them in academia, and it would be nice to work more on some of these UX, user developer experience kind of ideas. We have less than a minute. A few moments later. So yeah, so you're you're, you're talking about the exploratory thing that um, that that you think it's going to be like a, one of the things that we ignored, and then well, kind of it, it it's on the fringes of the programming, right? And then it became uh, sort of mainstream with closure, and not anymore. Probably in as mainstream as you can call closure, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it's always been there in various languages, the small talk people, the Lisp people. Mm. They have a long tradition of interactive programming. And the fourth people, uh, mm. of course, fourth is interactive. It's one of its great strengths. Mm. Um, and many of the other languages that are not interactive uh, could be. So, yeah. for example, with if I'm programming in Haskell, I, I tend to use the, um, the Haskell in, in, interpreter off to the side. The problem is yeah, that yeah. that 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 binary uh, crashes quite often. It's extremely yeah. fragile. Uh, so I suppose it's not completely correct by construction. Um, but you know, I, I do what I can. And the same if I'm using OCaml, I also, uh, there I will always run the top level UTOP off to the side because for me, I, I want to interact with the program as I'm running it. But the, because the cultures, and this is back to what Ray said earlier, because the cultures of those languages are not as interested in interactive programming, mm. the tools are not as good for it. Mm. But did you did you uh, well? Obviously, you did. So uh, I, I'm imagining um, what other languages that you use. Like, do you reach out to Clojure as the default one for all the stuff? Or uh, you already mentioned a bit of Scheme. Um, uh, any non-Lispy languages that you're interested in or playing with? Or oh, I mean, you I, see I, some promise. I've used dozens of languages over the course of my career, and yeah. there are things to like in many of them. Mm -hmm. And things to dislike in all of them, you know. That's just <laughs> that's just the nature of programming languages. Yeah. Uh, I would say that my default language for most sort of day-to-day -day programming tasks is Clojure at this stage. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's a nice language. I have I've, I'm very familiar with the standard library and the surrounding tooling and all those other things that make it easier to get work done. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously, if I'm doing something lower level, then I'll reach out to another language. Uh, I've yeah. recently written just as an example of some other languages. I've recently rewritten some things in. Rust and mm -hmm. in Go and mm -hmm. a bit of assembly language. I had to port my Scheme compiler to ARM when I got a new laptop. So that was yeah. a couple of days of fun. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So it, 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 what I reach for depends. Oh yeah, and I use Python for some machine learning things sometimes because it's easier to participate in the ecosystem than to start over from scratch over in my own world. Uh, yeah. Not always, but sometimes. Yeah. Actually, I, I was about to ask about Python because uh, as you mentioned, most of the machine learning stuff, I mean, it's kind of like took over, right? Python basically became the de facto um, language for all the data science-y sort of stuff. Um, but do you, do you miss anything from there, like all the scikit-learn stuff or all the uh, profit and different libraries that Python people put out, mostly PyTorch and everything? And do those things, do you think oh, those things are not now missing in enclosure world for you? Well, I would, so I'm in the weird position where I know all the stuff from the math side and all the stuff from the machine side. So when I need a thing, I generally just make the thing, but it's yeah. not practical for most people in that situation. They're either yeah. sort of more data science-y people where they know the maths, but they're not really implementers and it would take them forever to build the libraries they would need, or they're implementers, but they, they are not really strong on the other side. And so they wouldn't really know what to build and so on. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, so from that sense, I don't miss it so much. Uh, mm. But I will say that because the ecosystem is so large and well-developed for things like machine learning, that it is pretty time-consuming to do it yourself, to, to recreate a lot of those things. Mm. Um, on the other hand, I have found on the Python side that the library ecosystem is so enormously fragile and fragile all the way down to like if you're doing some machine learning thing and you're using an NVIDIA video card and now you're trying to run a library that was written a year, you know, something with a library that was written a year ago on a new piece of hardware, something will have changed in the API and the driver that will require you to refactor code at every layer up the stack where you can't even run code. So the rate of bit rot there is just excruciating. Yeah. Uh, whereas in my own stuff, I have code, you know, 15 year old machine learning code that still does what it's supposed to do because the layers underneath are not quite so quick sandy. Yeah. So. I think it, <laughs> the, the way the, the dependencies um, fail in Python is crazy or not change the levels of transitive dependencies. And then because I, I write some Python code and then like four levels deeper, some library changes something and everything breaks because there is no, you know, uh, constraint put in in one of the things. So this whole package management thing is a shit show, but uh, but I'm I'm curious about your your view on next journal versus because that obviously you know that's the one that um, that you're working on. But if you see the things like Jupiter Lab and these things, so what what is there any difference that you see, or are they trying to solve the same problem like you guys? So in the case of next journal in particular, uh, the the emphasis was on reproducibility, on avoiding exactly the kind of thing I was just talking about. So uh, that was one. And the other emphasis was on being able to use multiple languages in the notebook in a very transparent way. So with, uh, with NextJournal, you can go through and have, you know, uh, Julia, you know, code cell here and a Python one here and an R one there. And they can all talk to each other through a kind of file system layer that's happening underneath. And for each of them, the code you've written plus all of its dependencies is stored permanently in a content addressed way in a Docker container that can be pulled up later. So the idea there is that uh, if scientists do their work, we want to be able to rerun their analysis later. Otherwise, there's no reproducibility. Even if they did good work, we don't know what happened. Uh, we'll leave aside the problems of just getting scientists to post their data publicly. But assuming that they have posted their data in their code, a lot of time the code, for, for Python reasons that we just discussed, is useless yeah. within 6 to 12 months because the ecosystem has moved on. So we, uh, the, 
uh, I was not involved in making the decision to build that product. That's really Martin's baby. And his thing was to try to make science work better by making better tools for scientists to use. Mm -hmm. So far, I think it's mainly turned out that the incentive structure for the actual scientists has not pushed them in the direction of caring about reproducibility over the long haul, which is a cultural problem rather than a technological yeah. one, and thus much harder to solve. Yeah. What do you use to pass the data around because you, you hand wave you set some file system type stuff but i guess you need you need something to serialize and deserialize or or yeah so the bad news is i, I don't have like a we just use apache arrow kind of story that unifies everything no. in a nice tidy way instead you you have to pay attention to what file formats you're using between the different things and so on uh the yeah. The code cells run top to bottom, and there's a kind of uh, file system projected underneath that's shared among the different uh, runtimes that are running the different languages. And so if you're emitting some format that you have a library for in your various languages, then you can you know, read them back and forth between the languages. Okay. In an ideal world, we would probably have a data flow architecture that uh, just handles those things directly without a file system abstraction. But unfortunately, for most of these languages, it would mean fairly radically changing the way the code works for the language and thus breaking compatibility with what I think of as copy-paste compatibility. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 So you could end up with a JSON or Avro or Protobuf or something. Yeah, yeah. We, we'd end up with something like that and then runtimes that would look more like uh, observable, but for the various languages. Like that would be the nicest way to do it. Uh, but again, it would, it would break ecosystem things that people need because the whole reason they're using these languages is because of the you know meta x do what i want aspect of the libraries hmm. yeah mm -hmm. but the, the if i understand correctly uh, because you can use multiple languages in the same flow passing data between them must be pretty complicated right well it's not too bad everybody can read uh, csv for example and oh, a yeah. bunch of other formats <laughs> like this some of which yeah, are, yeah. are packed binary <clears throat> formats that everybody yeah. has a library for so if you have to do it, you can do it this way. And, and there's some other cleverness, but I'm not sure how much of it has shifted for the moment. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I think the, um, the, the thing about notebooks in general, which I like, is this sort of literary programming aspect of it, you know, where you can communicate, like, the, the growth of a program. Because I think that's one of the problems of programming, isn't it, is you end up just looking at the, the finished thing. And it's sort of, uh, it's difficult to communicate what, what choices you made as you went along um, in that environment. You know, that's the nice thing about a kind of literary style where you can, yeah, like I say, you can kind of show the thoughts and the options and the choices that you made. Um, and then people can review it in that sense, which I prefer than this uh, bullshit we have with GitHub at the moment. Yeah, I would, I would agree completely that, that literary programming is a very nice way to kind of explain what's going on. Uh, and I would say that we don't generally, as a, as a culture in programming, we don't sp spend enough time thinking about explaining the code to people who didn't write it. And uh, mm -hmm. that person yeah. who, who, or maybe didn't write it isn't enough. Like that stranger who's looking at the code, scratching his head six months from now might be you. So you really want to make sure that you, you wrote down what you were thinking right now so that that future mm -hmm. person, that future version of you isn't just cursing your name. Yeah, I get, I get very frustrated with this idea of just read the code, you know. It's like, well, yeah, okay. <laughs> Can do that, but it's not very efficient. And I would extend that even to code review. Like, uh, other than very trivial things, yeah. I don't believe in asynchronous code review. I, I want to actually talk to someone and have them explain to me what they were yes. trying to accomplish and what trade-offs they made. I don't want to just look at the code and make sure there are no typos. The compiler can do that, you know. It's... Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, it's very, I mean, that's why I like pair programming, mob programming, things like that. And, and funnily enough, I was talking to a colleague of mine the other day about, and he was saying that they do exactly this where he used to work, where they would not do a PR in the traditional sense, they do a kind of walkthrough PR. And, um, and th- we're going to start doing that as well because uh, well, we've mostly been pairing, which is great because then you don't have to explain so much. But um, as we as we do less and less of that, then yeah, these walkthroughs sound you know sound ideal. Yeah, that's definitely. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't got much experience of it to be honest. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, so we we pair a lot, um, at least in my team. No, the other part though. Um, uh, the the walkthrough PR is not something we've done. Um, unfortunately, we, there's we're mandated to have PRs and approvals on them uh, from auditors. Um, but I kind of agree that they suck in the sense that if either the PR is trivial and then I can read it in five minutes and like sign it off and it's fine, but then it probably didn't need to review or the PR is non-trivial and it's essentially going to take me more time than it took the person who wrote it to review it. And generally speaking, that doesn't happen. So you sort of get a rubber stamp. Um, mm. But um yeah, for for audit reasons, we're sort of forced into this process at the moment. But uh, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> you guys are using PRs. I mean, you're supposed to send a patch via email and attach it to Jira. I keep forgetting. Uh, yeah, it, it can always be worse. Jira. That's that's Sharing that's God. true. So I, w- I would say also that not doing the walkthroughs, the the very thing that you're talking about about how you just it gets to the culture of. Uh, LGTM, right? Looks good to me because nobody has yeah. time to actually yeah. do the thing. Yeah. And when I look at that combined with the style of management, and this is from a particularly uh, degraded form of Agile that works by making a zillion tiny little tickets, and then one mm-hmm. person takes a unit of work off and in isolation mm-hmm. of the rest of the system, works out how to kind of half-ass get the feature or the bug fix done, and then somebody else rubber stamps it and it goes in, and then you look up in six or 12 months and you realize that you have an unlimited quantity of architectural debt because no one has been zooming out and discussing yeah. the big picture as they've been going. And that's one of the things that I think is better when you do these walkthrough PRs and you talk about the motivation and you talk about the architectural consequences of the decisions you're making. How good is this API going to be? How much will it distort the rest of the system to have this API? This is the grown-up stuff that you have to be able to do ultimately. Do you think there is a there is a chance or based on the literature or the knowledge that you have and experience, so is there any technical solution to this problem or is it you do you think it's purely people people's problems so you just need to slap on their on their fingers and then say no we're going to do this way well i don't uh, i don't recommend finger slapping necessarily (laughs) (laughs) Um, we're going to do that part out and then we say jack said (laughs) Uh, no um, what i mean is that organizational change is a different thing than you know if the if the technology for like like type systems like Haskell forcing you into a specific type of thinking. Um, do you think the tools can help here or the technology can help here or the language can help here? Well, I, th- I think the tools can help in the sense that they can reduce the friction to doing what is the right thing in terms mm-hmm. of they can help the people to work together better. Yeah. Uh, but I think we actually, uh, and this is this is partly because of the com- most common disposition we have as, as people who fall into this trade, are people who work very well alone, most of us, uh, mm-hmm. And so the tools are often designed with this idea that everyone is an island and they're sending you know, notes in little mm-hmm. message yeah. in a bottle style off to the other islands when we should be doing more work together and the tools that we use should be facilitating and encouraging that kind of togetherness 
Uh, and then good management, which is actually very rare and very difficult and which uh, helps people to establish trust within teams to be able to do their best work. Uh, mm-hmm. Because if you, if you don't feel like you can say, I'm not sure if that's a good idea because this is the guy who blows up every time you criticize anything he does or mm-hmm. whatever, mm-hmm. then those things yeah. also will gradually destroy the quality of the work that comes out. The, the human factors are in, intensely intertwined with the technical factors. And if you try to w- work on one in isolation of the other, you will have problems. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if there is a great tool and then that's going to solve all the problems and then everybody will adopt it and then we'll all be using Emacs anyway. So, yeah, <laughs> but I'm, I'm not sure if it is a tooling problem. Um, Your mic's very quiet, by the way. Yeah, I'll, I'll get a bit closer. Uh, yeah. While you're doing that, let me interrupt. <laughs> I've had it. No, go on, go on. No, it was, uh, I just think, I don't think this is a tooling problem. Um, I think we fall into the trap of thinking that stuff can be fixed with tooling, mm-hmm. but uh, other engineering disciplines have this as well. You know, like in electrical engineering, only for electrical engineers, like you can't solve this with another tool, right? Like, I mean, you're designing a CPU or a board, like some documentation on the side is going to need to happen. And yeah, but Walter, you're an idiot, mate. You're not thinking about software. You know, <laughs> software can fix everything. Remember that. Yeah. I know. This is this is the. I mean, I, I, I'm joking, of course. Yeah. You're, you're definitely not an idiot, but uh, <laughs> but the thing is, this is the problem with the Silicon Valley mindset. You know, is that we just need tools and we just need uh, we just need this idea. And this idea that it's solvable via tooling is in itself a kind of you know illusion that they're very happy to sell. Yeah, I think certainly looking for some kind of absolute solution from a technical tool would be ridiculous. But I I do think that we tend to follow the easy path of the tools that are presented to us. So in the GitHub PR situation, the easiest way to do that is you you shoot the PR off and, you know, somebody Mm -hmm. else, their easiest path is to type LGTM and and then it's done. So you need uh, both social infrastructure, but also uh, tooling infrastructure that encourages the good stuff. And like, so what we try to do is we we have like a hierarchy of documentation. So there's stuff that goes into code commons, mm-hmm. um, which is very much like this implementation is kind of iffy. Let's write down why it is iffy so I understand next week. Mm-hmm. Um, then we've got this thing called ADRs, architectural decision records. They're essentially markdown files. We ship them in the same repo. And they're the the zoom out stuff you talked about where, you know, if you need to change an internal API or, uh, or, or something around how the code is structured, you know, module wise and and, and communicating, um, that will be captured there where we'll try to sort of address, you know, what problem is this solving? How is it evolving the internal APIs, et cetera. And, and it's again, mainly for us to capture the discussions we had with the team, um, and then we have what we call like zips, but they're, you know, our other companies call them RFCs or whatever, which are like the, the really uh, high level architecture of like, okay, we have this system, this is its purpose, and this is its super high level, you know, clouds and arrows diagram. And, you know, um, which we tend to write before we even begin coding a system. Um but but, but I think it, it's it's mostly discipline, right? Like that's, yeah, I think probably but it requires a lot of discipline to cap capture all yeah. of it and capture all of it greatly. Yeah. And I think their tooling can help. But mm. I haven't really seen anything that's 
that's better or sooner for for this type of stuff i think it comes back to jack's point though that a lot of it is management and leadership and having people that understand the ineffable nature of this problem yeah generation goes probably speaking to the uh to the adrs what i find so important about documents of that kind is that when you look at the you know you bisect your your repo and you look over you can see very quickly what was done but without the adrs you don't know why it was done and that's the part that if if someone comes along later and they see something in the code that looks a bit fishy they may start trying to refactor that code and then spend a couple of weeks to find out that they're breaking something at a distance because there's some reason, there's some dependency. There was a why involved with that decision. And then so, yeah, that's, I think, super important that you take the time to write those documents that clarify those things. And uh, it's also, I think, uh, speaks very well of your team that you do it in the repo because that's where those things belong. And a lot of teams will split those things off and put them in Google Docs mm-hmm. or somewhere far away yeah. from the code. And the farther away they are, the less likely it is anyone will look at them. And that's one of the kinds of things I mean when I talk about tooling decisions. Is your tooling decision to make somebody use a crappy web app that's far away from their, their editor? Or is your tooling decision to use something that feels very native to their workflow that will encourage them to touch those things more often? Hmm. Yeah. Do you have to log in to understand the code? Yeah. <laughs> it's a big problem. Nice. Even one of the main reasons we chose to commit them to the repo is actually because... Yeah, you're incredibly quiet, Walter, I... for a sound man. Come on, mate. Sort it out. <laughs> I mean, it's like why we why we chose the repo also is because it does happen to help with Git bisect. Like it it may not happen at like the <laughs> same, same Git commit, but you know, like the ADR will have been committed like either two commits earlier or you know four commits later. Like it ends up at roughly the same time period as when a particular code change has happened. Um, it's it's not entirely perfect, but. At least for me, I find that it helps uh, grok things, you know, like you only have to roll time back or forward just Mm. a little bit to find the why. Yeah. Now imagine that you had a tool for version control that allowed you to add annotations to the code and to that particular version of the code. And then you can scroll back and forth through it and see the things popping up and disappearing as it goes to get kind of a transcript of, uh, of the decision making that went in. Right. So I mean, this is what I mean by the, there can be better and worse ways of facilitating the kinds of things that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah definitely. Definitely. Cool. Yeah. So and I think the whole idea of like having like language sensitive tooling as well is super important, you yeah. know, because it, there are certain trivial changes to, to types and to data and to functions or whatever, and there are more strategic changes. And a, and a tool could potentially find them. Nice. So uh, I think we're almost like out of time, probably, <laughs> as promised. <laughs> after, oh, yeah. Let's after, be respectful. After, <laughs> after, after hopping through like 17 different services and then going back to <laughs> back to this one. Um, Jack, just um, you know, to, to wrap it up, like uh, what is what is next for you? Like what what is something that you're looking forward to in, in general in, in not just work, but you know, any computing and you know, anything that that you're super excited about, or from from all the way from the '80s on, we had an almost like 30 years. And what is the next 30 years? Well, 30 years is a long time. But what I would say I'm excited about right now, from us and from the wider closure community, is uh, well, there's a project called Tracy, which is a tracing debugger for closure that we're building as a kind of clerk add-on. 
And I think that's going to be really great. And we've built this sort of CI hosting thing for clerk notebooks called Garden that I think is very good, but which will grow into something much more ambitious that I'm not ready to talk about very much now, but I think could be used by many, many closure programmers in the future. I'm pretty excited about EMI, which is a computer algebra system by Sam Ritchie that uh, you will see at the Conj this year. Uh, there's also Bork Dude's work. I mean, all of it is uh, really, really great. But in particular, what he's working on now with Cherry and Squint, which are like alternative ClojureScript compilers, I think could really change the game in terms of using Clojure on the front end. And I think there's a lot of wonderful work being done in open source libraries from people like Matosin and Juxt. Now in the wider world, I would say that the uptick in interest in Datalog is really great to see. I've been using Datalog like databases and in fact building them since probably, well, 25 years now. And it's fantastic to see that Datomic has finally gotten people to wake up to how good that model is. Uh, I'm enjoying seeing some backlash against React on the front end. I, I think for many things, it is sort of a performance sync and quite, quite complicated. Uh, so hopefully we'll see more alternatives and move to things like HTMX. Optimistically, if Wasm goes in the right direction, I think we should see a flowering of interesting things there, but it'll have to get garbage collection and access to the DOM to be everything that it could be. Again, optimistically, I really like Nix as a package manage management strategy. It would be fantastic if it were to become easy enough to use that more people would in fact use it. And then very optimistically, I'm interested in seeing paid end user storage as a utility so that more apps can actually be things that people own that store their data in a place they pay for and we can move away from the kind of surveillance capitalism model that has taken over much of the internet. Nice. Hey, thanks a lot. Cool. Thanks for uh, you know your patience and uh, all the <laughs> shitty technical things. Um, but it's um, super exciting to finally uh, talk to you. And uh, I think we are, hopefully we'll, we'll bump into each other at some point, maybe in uh, somewhere on the, in, in, in Europe, because I tend not to go to US. Yes, uh, I mostly try to avoid it myself. Um, it's, <laughs> it's far, it's far from where I yes. live. Um, <laughs> That's the main reason for me as well. Yes, wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, a, it is a pleasure to meet you lads. And yeah. I'll see you on the Clojorian Slack. And, yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. We'll see you on the conference circuit, no doubt, some of these 20 states. <laughs> All right, take care. Nice. Yeah, see you. Have a nice day. Cheers, Jack. Thank you for listening to this episode of DefN. And the awesome vegetarian music or the track is Melon Hamburger by Pizzeri. And the show's audio is mixed by Walter Dullert. I'm pretty sure I butchered his name. Um, maybe you should insert your own name here, Dullert. Walter. If you'd like to support us, uh, please do check out our Patreon page and you can show your appreciation to all the hard work or the lack of hard work that we're doing. And um, you can also catch up with uh, either Ray with me for some unexplainable reason. Uh, you want to interact with us, then uh, do check us out on Slack, Closure in Slack or Closureverse or on Zulip or just at us at Defend Podcast on Twitter. Enjoy your day and see you in the next episode.